Crusade Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Today we're going to be looking at the takeover of Focus Group, the new push by the ACCC against Google, and new rules in spectrum management brought in by ACMA this week. But first, the Leosat revolution. A myriad of satellite operators are proposing to place literally tens of thousands of satellites into space over the next few years. One estimate I've seen totes some 50,000 going up. Now that requires an extraordinary coordination effort to avoid interference and collision, and as you might imagine, this is causing some friction between the various players. Now one of those more fractious conflicts is between Firesat and SpaceX. They've both been lobbing quite critical claims at each other in recent weeks. I won't go into all the full detail of that here, but we have been covering it extensively in the pages of Comms Day. But I did want to look at the general issue here, and to get a bit of illumination on it, we spoke with the Chief Officer, Global Government Affairs and Regulatory, John Jenker from Firesat, all the way from Washington, D.C. this week. He explained to us what the issue generally is all about. Um, sure. Uh, you know, in terms of the, the, uh, the monopolization issue, it's, it's really just uh, a matter of physics. Um, if you, I, I kind of use this analogy. If you think of the, the sky as sort of having a honeycomb associated with it, um, you can envision that a satellite in one location can use spectrum serving a spot on the U.S., and a, a, a satellite in another part of the honeycomb can use the same spectrum and serve the U.S. because we have angular separation among us. And that's been a fundamental tenet of, of coexistence among satellite systems for many, many years. And historically, there's been enough space for that to occur. In the geostationary arc, right, we separate every two or three degrees on the equator. And between geos and non-geos, there's been this angular separation where they stay away from the geo arc and, and everything works. Well, you know, historically, the non-geo systems have been relatively small. Iridium system was under 100. Global Star was under 100. Systems around that level don't really create these types of issues. But once you start having many thousands of non-geo satellites, even worse if it's tens of thousands, you find that all of the available look angles to the sky start to get consumed. So that honeycomb that I was referencing starts to fill up. And there's no room for anybody else. And it's not a huge problem for the mega constellations because if they run into a circumstance where somebody's in their way and they can't use the spectrum, they just go off to another satellite in their fleet and they complete the link. Yep. But the guy who's in the way is blocked. And that's the broader concern, that, that there is this new dynamic where the sky is literally, literally filling up with one or two of these huge constellations and there's no room uh, for anybody else and about the only answer people give is, well, you have to coordinate with them. Well, what incentive do they have to coordinate with you? 
moving on, and uh, we're going to take a look at the week that was in news with Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Hello, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Hey, um, let's start off by looking at um, what the ACCC's up to, and they're taking yet another lunge at Google. <laughs> they, they have, um, they've been quite, quite obsessive on this one, and they've found a new angle of attack on them, so tell us all about it. Yeah, I guess they're, they're certainly busy there with the kind of the, the war on um, big tech, really. So essentially, ACCC's raised concerns over, um, in this case, the impact of having the Chrome browser and Google search as defaults on the vast majority of Android handsets. And so kind of a, a, as a result, it's consulting on whether it needs to mandate um, when users set up a device that they have the option of what's called a browser ballot, where you basically you choose from a range of options, like in terms of like search engine and browser, and there's no default option. And it really kind of actually, to me, harks back to um, the kind of controversy back in the 90s over Microsoft bundling Internet Explorer with Windows 95 back in the day, which really crushed Netscape Navigator and led to quite a famous antitrust action in the US. So the kind of context of the current inquiry too is like, as you mentioned, it's one of a, a number of fronts that has opened up against Google, and it's actually... It's getting harder and harder to keep track of all of them. So there's the media code, uh, media bargaining code legislation, which has been passed, and there's also that potential uh, legal action. Um, I think that you, you may have covered actually um, uh, a month ago. I'm losing track of time. Um, the potential legal action over the Fitbit acquisition, as well as actually two actual cases brought by the ACCC against Google, which are kind of focused on Android privacy settings. And there's also um, the, the, the other significant thing that's happening as well is really the ACCC looking at Google's dominance of the ad tech space, which we've spoken about before, which is really quite significant because it really goes to how Google makes money. Yeah, now, you mentioned something interesting there, Rowan, um, regarding uh, the uh, the browser issue. It was actually some 20 years ago <laughs> and uh, um, when there was antitrust actions um, regarding bundling. And, of course, a lot of people forget this, but that was actually what precipitated the dot-com crash, that specific antitrust action. The next day, the NASDAQ dropped 8.5% or something along those lines, and that, that was the end of the tech bubble. So <laughs> you just see... History begins to repeat itself here. But as we've mentioned on this podcast before, the five top tech companies in the US, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook, have added $2 trillion to their market capitalization in the last 18 months or so. So there is a long, long way for them to pour, short investors take fright. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Um the other major government regulator in the space, uh, ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, this week came out with, um, I guess, its plan as to how it will implement the spectrum reforms that were implemented last year by Paul Fletcher in the Parliament. Uh, can you tell us uh, what they had to say, Rowan? So is this moving from the kind of a, a, a doom and gloom of a potential second dot-com bubble bursting to um, towards spectrum management? And good news, I guess, is kind of from a lot of people's perspective. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I know that was some, quite some segue, but um, we, we, like, we like the listeners of Comms Day Liar to remain generally optimistic and upbeat about their lives, so hence we move on. <laughs> You should probably you should probably keep me off the podcast then. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so yeah, th these are these reforms to spectrum management. They've been a long time coming, as you know. Like Paul Fletcher scrapped a kind of like wholesale rewrite of the Radcoms Act that was underway. 
because basically people are concerned that kind of the, the burden of transitioning to a whole new piece of legislation is going to be too much. So instead, last year, the government amended the existing Act. Um, so the most important measures in the, in the kind of amended Act are going to come into effect in June. And what the ACMA has really done is spell out how it plans to go about implementing it. Um, and that's, that's quite important because really the, the key change... Um, I, I think in the legislation is really that um, the ACMA is going to have a lot more power when it comes to directly bringing Spectrum to market. So instead of kind of like a back and forth process where the ACMA consults on a ban and recommends it to the minister who then directs the ACMA to go through some sort of allocation process, the ACMA can effectively um, cut out cut out the minister from that process really. I mean the government still sets the overall kind of policy objectives and the minister can step in and issue directions to the ACMA if necessary. But the idea is to really streamline the process. So it's kind of... Um, I, I guess the, the information paper released by the ASMA is really trying to assure people that it doesn't intend to do anything kind of uh, too wild with these new powers. Um, there, there were a couple of other elements to the, um, the Spectrum Reform 2 which are covered by the ACMA. So one is that now licences of up to 20 years are possible as opposed to 10 years. And the ASMA said it will, it will essentially look at like these really long-term licences when there's a small number of users and use cases and also a high degree of international harmonisation and a very low likelihood of um, needing to replan the, the band at a later stage. Also, if there's a kind of a, a potential for a strong secondary market for trading. So I guess the, the obvious kind of thing there is like, you know, you know, m- mobile, mobile spectrum with the obvious kind of case for those longer um, two-decade licences. Um, the the other other key change really is when issuing a license, the ACMA can specify you know the kind of circumstances under which it will renew it, and so it's, it's made clear that most of the time it will just renew a license. But there might be cases, for example, when it knows that there's going to be a replanning process that basically says, well, we're going to this is this is your you're going to have this license for a couple of years and then you're out of luck. Um, so yeah. Okay, and uh, um, uh, I guess the operators and, and the various uses of Spectrum will be quite relieved that they have some certainty coming up ahead of two rather large Spectrum auctions this year where they're going to be asked to dip in their pockets for hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more. Um, I, I guess they'll be quite relieved about that. Yeah, I imagine so. I mean, what's it's it's always interesting with these auctions too because I think ever since the... Um like the the 3.6 gigahertz auction where obviously dense air came in and picked up some spectrum it's kind of like you know are we gonna are we gonna see a dark horse again with these kind of bands coming up particularly millimeter wave i guess well my mail is that there might be uh, more than one dark horse but we will leave that for a um another week another bat time another bat channel um thank you so much once again rowan cheers a herd of dark horses perhaps I've got Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day, with me, and we're going to be talking about the big deal with Focus, with um, the Macquarie Fund Mirror and Aware Super lobbying in their $3.5 billion bid for Focus this week. Hi, Simon. How's it going, Graham? Uh, pretty, pretty good. Um, okay, so t- t- tell us all about the deal and um, what it all means and, and uh, what happens from here. Yeah, uh, as we know this week, uh, the uh, scheme implementation deed uh, was officially signed. Uh, So we're one step closer to Macquarie Infrastructure and Real Assets, uh, which we'll call Myra from now on. 
and uh, Aware Super um, as joint owners of Vocus. And uh, we know the name of the consortium now, uh, which is Voyage Australia. Um, and it's a pretty interesting deal and it's a real statement of intent. And we think it's actually going to create quite a, what we deemed a super telecom operator. Because if you look at it, Myra already owns Airtrunk, the hyperscale data center operator, and that's valued at $3 billion. You've also got Axicom, the tower specialist, at $2 billion. So, you know, they've got a broad array uh, adding in Vocus's extensive fiber assets, both uh, terrestrial and undersea cables as well. Uh, which gives them opportunities on the Asia-Pac side as well. So uh, you managed to catch uh, Kevin Russell on the hop coming back from uh, Canberra, and uh, he was uh, pretty happy with uh, how the procedure was going and uh, thought that the timing was pretty good. And one of the things he highlighted to us, which was quite interesting, that he was suggesting that now seemed to be the right time for Vocus to move back into private ownership. And uh, he told us about the fact that, uh, you know, when you're trying to make long-term investments, uh, and he thinks that's going to be a big thing over the next 12 to 24 months, sometimes as a private company, it's going to be a lot easier to do that. Uh, We also uh, got some confirmation uh, from Kevin around some of the uncertainty of what's going to happen with the New Zealand IPO, and uh, essentially... It's up to the new owners to decide what to do, but uh, as was reported in some places, uh, suggesting that this was now off the table, actually it isn't, uh, essentially. It looks like if uh, the new owners want to go ahead and do this, uh, they have uh, potential options, or if they actually want to infuse some capital into New Zealand, there could be some further options there. That's really going to be up to the new owners, essentially. So a little bit more detail around the uh, uh, consortium owners themselves. One of the things we picked up when we were looking through some of the uh, holding uh, companies uh, was that you had uh, a a split, as we expected, of uh, two uh, Meyer executives and two Aware Super executives. And interestingly, uh, one of the um, Meyer executives, Macquarie Group Senior Director Anaruda Sachcroft, uh, is also a current board member of both Axicom and Airtrunk, and that really starts to blend in how they're going to be able to drive some of these synergies across their telecom infrastructure assets. So it's going to be pretty interesting on how that's going to play out. And uh, in terms of the timetable, we're looking at um, the scheme booklet is going to be sent to shareholders in May 2021. That's going to have uh, all of the uh, details on uh, why it's a good deal and so on, so the shareholders can make a decision. Uh, we would expect a uh, scheme meeting then to happen in June, and uh, that's where the shareholders will get a chance to vote. Uh, obviously, there's some other regulatory approvals to go through as well. But if the shareholders vote in favour, we're probably looking at acquisition closure about July time. Okay, that's a very interesting wrap-up, Simon. Um, a couple of couple of thoughts that sort of have occurred to me with, with, with all this. It, it strikes me that this is an absolutely fantastic time of the cycle for this deal to go ahead. I mean, to tech stock prices are all-time high, interest rates are low, there's a lot of money around the world chasing fibre infrastructure. And, of course, we, we, we've, we've seen a couple of other companies uh, in, engage in this, I guess, frenzy, for want of a better word. You know, companies like Fiber Connects and so on have been raising money and going out and building, in, in Fiber Connects' case, a dark fibre network in Sydney and, and 
and Melbourne shortly. And then, of course, we've also um, seen some of these more speculative ventures, like the new Bevan Slattery venture, Hyper One. He wants to build dark fibre all around the country. Um, funnily enough, on a, a lot of the uh, destinations that Focus currently serve. So what, what are your thoughts about the, the, the larger landscape here um, in, in terms of how this will all play out in terms of competition? Well, it's, it's interesting and it ties in with uh, some of the uh, wider discussions, even what's happening on the satellite front, uh, because we were speaking with uh, Viasat this week and uh, they were talking about uh, their own opinion on dark fibre access. As we know, uh, a lot of the eastern seaboard has a, a lot of fibre, but it seems as though a lot of it is DC to DC fibre and you're getting a lot of Me Too players uh, delivering in that. So uh, as far as I can see uh, in terms of the competition, you need money uh, to build these big networks out um, and uh, you need solid backers uh, to uh, make your strategy and your plan work. And the new stage with Vocus coming in and doing this, uh, you could argue that the uh, step that Telstra made to uh, start uh, offering more dark fibre uh, was a bit of a ret- retaliation to uh, the Vocus move. But you're going to see that uh, this is going to be something that we're going to have deeper networks reaching out further than the existing uh, routes that we have, essentially. So in terms of the market positioning, you're going to have quite an interesting flux in the next couple of years on how many uh, back-all uh, options are available. Because keep in mind, you know, companies like our Viasat and a lot of the other players that are building out their ground stations, they're not building them in the big city centres, so they actually need that fibre out to those uh, particular locations. And we already know Vocus, for example, is uh, well engaged with a couple of the Leo providers in doing some of that. And uh, some of these sites are pretty remote, so there's going to be opportunities there Uh, We think the competition uh, will be quite keen and uh, it's going to be a really interesting one to watch because I think it's moving away from just DC to DC connectivity and uh, now getting into the community world. And sitting above all of that, we have the whole uh, access fibre discussion uh, with MBN and uh, what's going to happen there. So it's going to be quite an interesting time. Getting the regulation right uh, on all of this is going to be uh, quite key in the next year or two. Okay, that's a great wrap-up. Just as uh, this podcast has been recorded, um, there's been a press release come from uh, Fibre Expressway over in Perth. Now, they're not a company that many people have heard of. We've written about them a bit in Comstay over the years, and it's a, a long-standing proposal to build a fibre-optic cable between Western Australia and, and Singapore and go through all the oil and gas fields up in the Kimberleys. We, I think we first wrote about it four or five years ago. And... Um, it never seems to have gone anywhere, but now they're talking about a $1.5 billion project. They've got a, a bank behind them. They've appointed a CEO. It's all happening. So, I mean, de- definitely there's a there's something going on out there. <laughs> it's, uh, regardless of whether all these plans come to fruition, um, there is something a little reminiscent of the telecom rush of two decades ago. Anyway, on that note, thanks very much, Simon. Thanks again, Graham. Well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. We'll see you next week. And then the week after that, we'll be taking a bit of a break for Easter. 
Uh, see you soon.